0: to the Feminist Shift Podcast, the podcast that takes a deep dive into issues affecting Waterloo Region and beyond through an intersectional feminist lens. We're your hosts. Jen Gordon. And I'm Roz Gunn. All right. Well, it's uh, been a hot minute since we've spoken, Jen, and a whole lot has happened in the world, even this very tiny world of Ontario. From where I'm sitting, we've seen Capitol Hill be sieged, We've seen Trump's second impeachment. And now Ontario is in another lockdown, but Lockdown 2.0 with a brand new name. Lots going on. Uh, What issues are you paying attention to right now?
1: Actually, I'm going to dilute this because if you asked me a couple days ago, my answer would have been all over what's happening in the States, but also like vaccine rollout and the inequality Mm -hmm. that's coming over that. But now I'm 100% on to the exploding vagina candle. Have you heard about this? Oh my gosh. Gwyneth Paltrow. Yes. Paltrow the Dinah <laughs> Candle. Oh, that's all it is. And I almost feel like it's like, it's a complete symbolism for everything else. Capitol Hill, second of peace, And I feel like this exploding candle is just the epitome of what I can actually take in anymore. Um, that's amazing. Yes. Yeah. Uh, it's times like this that i freaking love twitter <laughs> right I know Gwyneth Paltrow trending what's going on there I wonder what she's doing uh, so for those who aren't uh, familiar with this uh the the one sentence version is Gwyneth Peltro through uh, Goop um which is her uh, whatever it's her thing I'm not to her do wellness
0: that. company Jen
1: <laughs> it's, her, it's her wellness how do you get quotations on podcasts <laughs> um company uh she has uh, a candle that is scented to what she claims is the scent of her vagina and there was a woman who was burning the candle who uh, ended up um, it ended up exploding with like I don't know the exaggeration is like fifty 55 flames and da 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 so it's all I can it's all I can handle right now I'm in there what, what are you paying attention to right now you're gonna be the better feminist in this scenario aren't you
0: I have been totally obsessed with an issue I'm working for YWCA Cambridge child care is uh, very, very, a very significant part of our organization. So I have been just all over the childcare front. So demanding that the childcare workers get pandemic pay. We still don't even know if childcare workers are in phase two of the vaccine rollout. It's just a cluster. So yeah, I guess a more serious answer, but it's serious. Our province has consistently and completely neglected the childcare sector uh, and it will be to the detriment of the entire economy. So yeah, I'm a little. I'm a little fired up about this.
1: like the bottom part of me is like, what are, what is planned? So like, maybe, maybe it's still coming, you know, that hopeful, but I think the advocacy is exactly what's needed. So child care stops being the second, third, fourth idea, but anytime that there's a needed reason or the economy has to this child care becomes the front and center. Like you can't, you can't play both sides. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And unfortunately, it's largely front and center for feminists. So it in this isn't just a feminist issue. And so we all need to talk about this.
1: Yeah, well, as we I mean, did
0: in our op-ed in the community edition last
1: yeah. month. We <laughs> talked about that last uh, December. We uh, we put out an op-ed. Feminist Shift and Ross and I wrote an op-ed for the community edition, where we had a chance to kind of pull apart how childcare is central to an economic recovery. And within that buzz, we also uh, did some media around a data for good report that we put out. Uh, both of those are available on our website. I want to dive a little bit into what our podcast is going to be for this month. We will be talking about a misogynist who definitely blew his one shot with all women through dating advice. We'll be talking and interviewing a badass lawyer, educator, and theater practitioner who's definitely one of the coolest feminists we know. Uh, and we'll be celebrating a big win for some feminists to the South. So we have lots of great stuff planned today.
0: Yes, I am ready for some feminist shift time. Let's just look away from this tire fire and get into it.
1: Okay, so first up is our Patriarchy Alive and Well segment. For those of you that were with us last time, you know a little bit about this segment, but I'll tell you some more in case you're a first-time listener. Uh, Essentially, what we're trying to do is search the underbelly of the internet for the most obscene headline that proves that the patriarchy is alive and well. Uh, So last month, I talked about a woman who was fired for telling off a man who harassed her online uh, through her feminist swag shop which was sort of her side business, uh, to which she was also asked in her HR interview if she was racist towards white men. Uh, So right now, that's the bar that Ross is going to meet and dive under.
0: I think I have further lowered the bar. This tree comes to us from the Daily Mail. The headline is just perfect. Uh, It says, and my emphasis is to indicate all caps, words that are in all caps. So I guarantee he got this information from a dog training video. TikTok user slammed for misogynistic dating advice in a viral video urging men to, quotation, punish women's bad behavior. So this love doctor, Myron Gaines, a life and fitness coach from Miami, Florida, had some advice for men dating women. Um, So Gaines advised men on what they should do when a woman wants to reschedule a date, insisting it is, quote, bad behavior that shouldn't be rewarded. Quote, you simply respond, hey, that's cool, but I'm not really a fan of flaky girls. If we go out, you're going to pay for drinks or dinner or whatever plans you guys had, he said. Quote continues, with women, when they give you undesirable behavior, you need to punish it immediately. So she knows it's not acceptable. He added, because if you take her back and take her on a date after she did some BS like that, she's going to think it's okay. Don't reinforce bad behavior with positive treatment. So that's disgusting and vile. Good news part of this story is that Twitter was ablaze. Um, Some of the responses were pretty damning. One user saying it's bad behavior to have to reschedule. He might as well spray us in the face with a water bottle like a cat. Another saying, I was was in an animal science class and this is the exact same information that we had to write down during the dog unit. So there, there's your uh, patriarchy alive and well. There are men like this still out there. This is like, this is like incel meets pickup artist all in one, or are they the same? I think they're the same. Not technically, but they're kind of the same people. They run in the same circles.
1: Yeah. Okay, so here's my my takeaway. Um, so there's two things that I saw when I was diving into it was... Like he based all of this advice on a woman canceling a date. And so it was such a minor thing. People were like, like, relax, like clearly, you're over, you're overdoing it. Like it's not like much happened. People cancel all the time. You know, it happens. But for me, it was it was the fact that he decided to take something so merely insignificant and decide to do redirective, manipulative, and gross behavior around yeah. it is exactly what people miss when it comes to those uh controlling and violent relationships right yeah. like it, it, with with the kind of rhetoric that he would be bringing into a dating situation that manipulation that control that violence this is what women are living with in terms of every little thing being an explosive you look the wrong way your hair's done the wrong way you know you say the yeah. wrong thing you you glance too long in the wrong in in a direction all those things those tiny micro things are exactly the catalysts uh, that caused the, the behavior. So I think that was a little bit missed about like the immediate relay over into uh, bigger issues. For sure.
0: Yeah, I mean, I mock this, but at its core, this is this is just sort of indicative of that rampant sense of entitlement to controlling women's behaviors. And it, it is so disgusting.
1: Um, And it started to get me to think a little bit about the industry that is that, right? We don't regulate that industry. People are able to call themselves life coaches and dating coaches and whatever at a whim. Um, And it can cause a lot of and reinforce a lot of really gross behavior um, and a lot of harassment and violence. um,
0: Oh, yeah. So gross. How much do you want to bet that every single one of these dudes is on a Jordan Peterson chat group or online community?
1: Well, I think you have to find inspiration somewhere. So I think, yeah. <laughs> I think it's
0: most likely, right? So
1: gross. This is pretty good. Let's
0: move along. We have a very special guest with us. I'm super excited. Full disclosure, she's a very good friend of mine. I have known her many, many years. Um, Sukhpreet Sanga. Uh, Sukhpreet is a lawyer, theater maker, writer, and barfly. After studying theater and English at the University of Waterloo, she studied at law, law at Osgoode Hall. Sukhpreet has practiced as a criminal defense lawyer in private practice, and as a poverty lawyer at a community legal clinic. In those roles, she appeared before all levels of court in Ontario, as well as several administrative tribunals and Supreme Court of Canada. Currently, she works in legal education at a nonprofit dedicated to youth. Sukhpreet also remains active as a theater practitioner, and to that end, is co-artistic director of Informal Upright Theater Collective. Hello, Sukhpreet. Thank you for taking the time to speak with us today.
1: Thanks for having me. Okay so I'm totally taking over here. Uh, First and foremost, you are an incredibly interesting feminist. I think you need to know that. (laughs) I
2: appreciate that. I don't think anyone's ever said that to me before.
1: (laughs) Um, In particular, um, I'm super intrigued about how you've come to marry two rather opposite um, opposites. Uh, So the idea of the freedom of the arts, uh, which I totally resonate with, and the structure of justice and law. And so when I work with people around sort of developing their advocacy and a natural advocacy to them, um, I always talk about how we bring our experiences and our skills and our interests kind of all together in a really weird mashup that helps us to define our advocacy and the work that we, the work that we do and how we try and create impact. And I feel you're an excellent example of that. So my fangirl question right at the gate is, um, how do you go about creating your impact through your work and other activities you do? Um,
2: Okay, good question. Kind of philosophical. I don't know that I've, I've thought about it that much before. Um, also feels kind of presumptuous to assume that I'm having an impact, but I, I hope that I am. And I guess the ways that I'm trying to do that are various. Um, so when I was practicing law, then I think it was more clear. I was you know, trying to have a very direct impact on my clients' lives by representing them in court and at hearings, at administrative tribunals, and just trying to do a good job um, getting the outcomes that they desired. And also I really had to focus on working holistically with my clients as much as possible about trying to address the bigger issues that they were working on and making referrals to social service agencies where possible. And you know, I worked as a criminal defense lawyer with clients that were primarily on legal aid and so we're living in poverty. And then I worked at a community legal clinic where clients had to have an income below a certain threshold to even qualify for our services. So the majority of my clients were people living in poverty who had, you know, the sort of common issues that they're confronting as a result of having low income. And a lot of my work was, you know, about helping them get out of legal trouble, especially in the criminal defense realm, but then in the clinic realm about often trying to get them income assistance. So that's a pretty direct, obvious impact on a person's life if they're able to access Um, Ontario Works or Welfare or the Ontario Disability Support Program or Employment Insurance or Canada Pension Plan, you know, I worked in all those areas. So really kind of trying to get at the root of some of their economic issues with that kind of work. um, Mm -hmm. That can have a pretty major impact. And I also did immigration work. So that's pretty major too. you know, trying to help people come to Canada or sponsor relatives over to assist them, which also has an economic benefit if you can get you know, a parent or grandparent over to help you with childcare, that's an immediate economic boost. Um, Unfortunately, the federal government changed our parent grandparent sponsorship laws. So there's a low income cutoff for families to be able to sponsor parents and grandparents over, which really limits who can do it. And um, unfortunately means that people of lower incomes don't even qualify anymore, but it still helps if you do qualify in these ways. And then through my theater, um, the impact is a lot harder to measure, you know, with art, the Mm -hmm. audience is broader. It's not a single client. You don't see the impact always. Sometimes you do, and that's lovely, but a lot of it is about having faith that, um, having people engage with, you know, in my example, theater, um, is going to have, an impact on them and how they're thinking about the issues that are presented in the work. And the theater work that I tend to do tends to be political in nature and often is pretty obvious about that, sometimes more subtle, but um, not always. And so the impact there is, you know, telling stories, influencing people through narrative and trying to get them to see parts of life that they might not have access to otherwise, or maybe just Look at things in a different way that they might have already been exposed to in their own lives.
1: See, fan girl, everyone listening now is like, yeah, I get it. I get why. Yeah,
0: that was yeah for uh, being uncertain of how to answer a big question. That was a fantastic answer. Um, So I we've sort of touched on your work as a criminal defense lawyer in Toronto and. So I guess I'm wondering. So from your time in that realm, can you share any general observations? What what generally were the charges you were contesting most often? Um, what is it like being an outsider but with an inside look for a criminalized person going through the justice system? So I guess I'm kind of asking, sort of general trends. What you know, what is it like for a criminalized person coming up against the justice system?
2: Yeah. Um, I, I guess it's clear from your question, but I do want to underscore that you know. Um, I can't speak to this as directly as someone with lived experience of that. I did represent lots of people who were living that experience, but my answer comes from the perspective of a lawyer who's heard some direct um, testimony. I guess you could say from my clients, but uh, their their answers would probably differ and be you know more meaningful in some ways. But I can say that I think that it is pretty terrible. I think that our Criminal legal system, which I specifically do not refer to as a criminal justice system, does Mm -hmm. not serve people on either side. And it was hard to see that every day. You know, as a criminal defense lawyer, I was in court um, pretty much, yeah, almost every day, every week that I was doing it. And that was from even when I was training as an articling student in defense work. And it's hard to ignore the realities of our courts and our criminal law when it's confronting you every day and it becomes very clear that the race of the people who are accused, the races of the people who are accused, are not generally the same as the races of the people who are prosecuting them and even defending them and judging them on the jury or on the bench as a judge. Um, you know, that it was very, very apparent that in Toronto's criminal courts, Black people are present as the accused far more than other races as well as Indigenous people. And we know that from the research. And that's, that's very apparent. If you go into a courthouse, you can see that. I and mean, you don't have to spend very much time there for that to be quite obvious. And mm-hmm. it also doesn't take that long to start to see how people get very frustrated with having to be part of that system. And that's often all parties. That can be witnesses, survivors, um, accused people, lawyers, really everyone. But of course it's affecting the lives most directly of people who are accused or survivors of crime or witnesses. And a real part of that puzzle is that cases take an extremely long time to get through our criminal courts. And that delay really doesn't serve anyone. You know, p- witnesses lose recall of what has happened. Accused people are on bail or in custody in jail waiting their trial for a very long time, you know, upwards of a year but at least months, even on a very simple sort of low level criminal charge. And that's, that has a very serious impact on their lives. It limits what they can do while they're, while they're out, even if they are on bail, but you know, if they're in custody, then it's pretty much the harshest limit you can think of. And even, even if a case goes the way that somebody wants it to, all of that time spent in limbo is not good frankly um it it really hangs over people's heads and has a very serious impact on them and you know can have very negative repercussions on mental health also on opportunities you know lots of if you're on bail you can't um usually can't leave the province a lot of why i think it doesn't serve people is this excessive focus on imprisonment and punishment um, and, you know, I speak as a, an abolitionist. I don't believe in the prison system. That's not something that I think we need to have. And I'm very, um, I'm I'm, well, not very, but I'm hopeful uh, about the fact that that conversation is happening a lot more broadly than I've seen it happen before in society. Um, but this is just to say that if, unless we start to focus on restorative justice and transformative justice, mm-hmm. this is gonna continue people's right. experiences in our criminal system are gonna to continue to be widely negative from both sides, uh, unless we really move from a punishment perspective and an imprisonment focus.
0: Right, so thank you. Um, so, okay, so restorative justice, um, what, I, what does that look like? Are there sort of, if we could have whatever we wanted, are there quick fixes that could happen within the justice system? Or is it really the whole thing needs to blow up? Uh, we just need a sort of justice. And if it is the latter, so what are the pieces that need to be most ideally put in place for that to happen?
2: I'm not sure that there are quick fixes. Mm-hmm. But part of the analysis, I think, needs to be that our criminal cases take so long anyways that we do have the time. To engage in restorative and transformative processes which people look at as taking too much time. They're slow because what it means if we're engaging in a restorative or transformative process is that we need all parties to come to the table and be willing to acknowledge the harm that has happened and look creatively at how that harm can be repaired. What does the person who experienced the crime, the victim or the survivor, need? What? How are they harmed, and what are they looking for that would help repair that harm? And the person who's accused of causing it, what are they willing to do to that end? And it involves a you know a pretty dedicated conversation in a safe space that is facilitated by people who are experienced in this kind of work. And that takes time, and people need to be vulnerable. And then the work needs to be done after you know there's a plan of what what needs to happen, and someone is willing to acknowledge what they've done and how it is harm the other person and they're willing to try and make amends and you know if we're looking at transformative justice then we're also looking at um you know how to how to prevent it from happening again in the future and even systemic transformation these things are are big, big concepts and ideas that take time. But because our trials take so long and people are sitting in this limbo for so long, my argument is that we have time to do that. Mm-hmm. But what we need to do is put those programs in place. And we already have some of that happening. Thankfully, um, mostly at the youth level, in youth courts, there's more opportunities for things like diversion and you know volunteering, community service, and restorative circles. There are some good programs like Peace Builders in Toronto that do this type of work when youth find themselves in. Criminal courts, but they're not very accessible to adults. Um, There are some programs in place, especially for people that are sort of first offenders charged with something small like theft, that's shoplifting, for example. There's some programs in Brampton and some other jurisdictions, but we need to broaden the availability of that type of resolution and promote it, you know, and crowns need to get on board and defense counsel need to get on board and we need to start trying to make it happen. And yeah, I'm not gonna say it's quick, but we have the time and we need to take
0: it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: What is, forgive the really simplistic question, but what is the holdup? Why, why, is will our system not change when there's enough evidence to show that restorative justice is more effective, especially at reducing, for instance, recidivism?
2: Um, I think there's probably a lot of answers to that question, but the one that comes to mind first is politics. Mm -hmm. Uh, We know that crime is a hot-button issue in in electoral campaigns, and many parties really campaign on on crime issues and justice issues. And I think that the the conversation that politicians have with members of the public um, doesn't well, I mean, in a lot of ways, it's a lie. It doesn't, it doesn't acknowledge where crime tends to come from, which is economic reasons. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't acknowledge that in order to reduce crime, we need to deal with those economic reasons, the poverty that a lot of people are living in that makes them commit crimes. Mm-hmm. And there's a real reluctance to discuss that in a, in a big way on a political level and in a national conversation. And so people are lured by the promise of tough on crime agendas and imprisoning people. And so the, the, I think the dominant framework that people have is that you know you, you have to put people in prison when they commit crimes, especially if they're violent and that's the only option and people seem to think that it works. And there is research, like you've mentioned, showing that it doesn't work. And I am uh, somewhat optimistic like I mentioned because of the fact that we're having more of these conversations now. But I think a lot of it is, you know, politicians need to be honest. They know that what they're marketing is not going to work the way that they're marketing it, but they don't care. So it's Mm -hmm. not only about, uh, about helping and protecting those inmates themselves, but about others. And, you know, if that's going to sell it to you, then I think you should look at why you don't care about the people who are caged, but that's a whole other conversation. And, and they, they know better, but they also know that, they can get votes this way. So I think it really, that's an important level where, where a lot needs to change.
0: Um, okay, so we're both self-described feminists. Um, and of course, our definition of feminism is intersectional. It means that everything impacts everything else. So certainly the justice system and those who are confronting it falls under the purview of feminism. And so we don't really know how the justice system works very well. Um, as advocates or as feminists, what should we know? Or how should we go about learning more?
2: Another big question. Um, <laughs> I think that a lot of people don't have a lot of information about Canadian law and the legal system. And in many ways, that's to create a need for lawyers and legal representation, right? That that vacuum of knowledge is far bigger. Is that a mixed metaphor? Anyways, it's uh, <laughs> it's... it's it, it is, a lot more substantial than it should ever have become, and part of the reason is to promote the specialization of legal professionals and create work for people who have gone to very expensive law schools like I have um, to repay that, and also just to make money. And so I think it's it's a it's an important question and an acknowledgement that that's not just you two, that's most people. And um, yeah, that that does need to be addressed. And part of my work is about doing that. And um, I think some important steps, I mean, as feminists and feminist advocates who are interested in issues that relate to people who identify as women, I think it's important to become familiar with family law, and also criminal law, I'd say those two spheres really have a have a major impact on women who are experiencing domestic violence and sexual violence, and so I think law is such a big area that it's good to try to be a bit more focused at the outset, otherwise it's pretty overwhelming. Um, So I would say maybe to focus on those areas, immigration is another big one too, and something that I recommend to my students and to people in general is going to court. And it's hard right now, but we have an open court principle in Canadian law, which means that people should be able to access our court proceedings. People should be able to see trials, hear trials. And that remains true in COVID-19. And so you can get links to Zoom trials and sit in and listen to what's happening. And, you know, this is a bit of a domain of the privilege, you have to be able to get out of work or school or childcare or other caregiving in order to participate in this way. But in some ways the remoteness might allow more people to do it, I think. And, you know, landlord and tenant board hearings are pretty a huge issue. Housing is a huge issue, a feminist issue, a poverty issue and those hearings you can sit in on. I've done that during the pandemic because it's easier than going in person. And mm-hmm. I really do think that seeing how the work gets done in these litigation settings is very instructive. And and it gives, you know, really a real world flavor to what does it mean to be evicted? How does it look when you're in front of a decision maker trying to keep your home? It looks like a hearing at the Landlord and Tenant Board, uh, which often is not conducted in a manner that I would call fair. And what does it look like to be in criminal court? Go watch. Um, I really think that that's one of the best ways. And then there are a few other ways I would recommend. community legal clinics which I've mentioned before that are funded by legal aid and I used to work at one do a lot of public legal education sessions or PLEs and those can be very instructive too um so you know try to keep an eye out for what PLEs your local community clinic is doing or your specialty clinic if you're interested in certain issues that they work on uh and go to those and those are being done remotely as well and normally they're in person and also we do have some good resources available online so um, There's a clinic called Community Legal Education Ontario or CLEO and they run a website called stepstojustice.ca which has good information on how to deal with common legal issues that lots of people face especially people living in poverty and you can learn a lot there. Um, I have the feeling that I had another suggestion but I I mean that's a lot
0: (laughs) (laughs) and I am familiar with CLEO actually yes thank you for raising that one yeah i think that's all very good advice and it's all it all sounds certainly doable i think one of the biggest pieces of trying wanting to learn about something is not even knowing where to start and i think just being told watch watch um a proceeding a court proceeding Um, and i think that's it's i guess i'd say empowering to just know that's that's a good place to start
2: yeah i think it is and i should caveat that with it will be hard to understand certain things that are happening because you know law is unfortunately quite specialized at times and and hard to understand without some introductory knowledge, but then it also puts you in a place where you know what questions to ask and hopefully can get some answers afterwards, even if things aren't immediately clear as they're happening in the room or in the Zoom call. Um, And I should mention another website because of um, the feminist focus here, uh, the Ontario Women's Justice Network, OWJN.org, which is run by Metrac, which is a place I used to work, um,
0: has great legal information for people in situations of violence, Awesome. Thank you. We should add all these links in our show notes.
1: Uh, So for a while, I was doing uh, homelessness outreach, um, and every once in a while, that would bring me into uh, uh, local court um, proceedings, uh, naturally. Even if you don't know what's going on necessarily from a technical standpoint, it's still a really good... um, it's a, it was always a good tool for me to understand power dynamics that are at play within that uh, structure and that system, and how similarly they mirror some of the uh, oppressive uh, structures that land people um, uh, in court and injustice uh, that lands people there. And then it also really started to push me um, from a preventative uh, perspective. And so I'm curious about your work with LAWS. So for those not in the know, uh, LAWS stand for Law in Action Within Schools and it's an organization out of Toronto. And so I'm wondering if you could tell me a little bit more about what your work looks like there and why an organization like this exists? Sure, yeah. Um, So I run uh, our newcomer
2: program at LAWS And we're a partnership between two of the Toronto law schools. So U of T's faculty of law and Osgoode hall at York, which is where I went to law school. And what I do primarily is run rights-based legal education workshops in upper level ESL classes in Toronto public school board high schools. So I go to about eight or nine high schools in the city. Now virtually normally in person um, that have high newcomer populations and ESL and the Ontario, Uh, public school curriculum has five levels, uh, A, B, C, D, and E. So in the C, D, and E classes, the students have more English fluency. And I go to those classes and teach about, you know, what are your rights in employment law, if you're working and you're not getting paid um, the minimum, the student minimum wage, for example, or what happens when the police stop you? What do you have to answer? And what don't you have to answer? or we do mock trials so that students get more familiar with, you know, litigation, the trial process and criminal court through that sort of more experiential way and get practice speaking. Um, And we run mentorship programs, we have a summer job program where we employ students um, in legal workplaces in the summer for four to six weeks. And really, it's designed to empower students in different ways to learn more about their rights and about law and also to promote um, higher graduation rates from the schools where we're working too. We have a whole other program that I don't manage um, called the core program where students are with us through grades 10, 11, and 12, and they take uh, their usual courses, but with a law-infused curriculum where we work with their teachers in those three grades to um, teach about law in classes, even like science and history. And a lot of that is designed to get the students more engaged in high school and yeah try and promote success and graduation and potentially further schooling and the high schools we're in are um, ranked pretty high on the learning opportunities index which is a a ranking that the TDSB maintains about schools and how much access the students have to different supports and their success rates and, and things like that so we're focused on um, you know, neighborhoods and schools where students maybe have a have a tougher time, you could say. And um, it's about it's about empowerment, really. And then for my students who are newcomers to Canada, it's really also about learning more about this country that you've recently come to, and um, seeing what the differences might be between how you can enforce your legal rights here versus what you might be used to, or just you know learning. system at all and um, knowing about things like legal aid and how to get free legal help should you need it. And I think uh, a lot of the merit of being proactive and, and learning about your rights and laws before requiring them is that it's very hard to retain this information if you're in a situation where you actually need to operationalize it right away, right? Like at the legal clinic I worked at, it was the South Asian Legal Clinic of Ontario. And so my clients were all racialized women, South Asian women, and some of what you say, you know, I can relate to through my own work experience of clients not wanting to have the police involved or criminalize their partners, even in situations of domestic violence and abuse because of potential immigration consequences and sometimes misinformation about that, sometimes accurate information about that, but also just a lot of, um, a real lack of knowledge sometimes through the work of the partner and the abuse there and the limiting of access and also sometimes in, in more innocent ways. And it can be really hard to, to learn about law, which is such a dense area often when you're, you know, trying to keep yourself and your family safe in a situation of trauma. So part of learning it before especially as a as a young person is the the hope that when you need it hopefully you don't but if you do you have a much better chance of of operationalizing it and retaining it because you didn't learn it in this emergency situation
1: yeah yeah absolutely um and I also think within that having more um prevention work around um restorative justice is also super cool. And in our community, we have community justice initiatives. So it's just banging that sort of stuff out of the park, right? Yeah, they're fantastic.
2: Yeah, as a Kitchener-Waterloo native, I'm, I'm proud that
0: that they exist. There. Um, I, I feel like the answer sort of been come to, I, I guess I was wondering just as a community, especially we're looking at Waterloo Region ourselves, what does a community need in order for us all to to support each other, so supporting our newcomer neighbors, supporting um, women and youth who may be victims of violence or in positions of criminalization. What does what does the community need?
2: Uh, I think a lot of it comes down to money, right? The, the the programs need to be funded to help community members help each other, and mm-hmm. also to help people who need to. Uh, have a safe place to go if they're escaping violence. You know, We need more domestic violence shelters. We need more women's shelters. We need more shelters for people who are unhoused. We need better access to income assistance and disability supports for people who are currently or maybe forever unable to work and need to pay to live because we live in a capitalist society that demands a lot of income in order to live healthily and happily. Um, So I think the, the root answer for me often comes down to money. But other than that, I think we need community supports. And we need to believe in the power of each other, we need to be able to know our neighbors and trust each other and have networks of family and friends and you know, social service workers that we can try and turn to to help each other to engage in conflict resolution and mitigation and management through supports that do not involve the police and that do not involve the criminal courts and so these are These are projects that I think do need to be funded by the government, by various levels of government, all three. And uh, so that that's another way that we need money. But we also do really need to engage in a a deep philosophical envisioning of, of what does it look like to engage in restorative justice and transformative justice and to live an abolitionist future. And a lot of what I'm hearing people say lately, which I Agree with it resonates with me is that 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 is a kind of dreaming and that's a kind of writing of speculative fiction, but it's it's a dreaming and a speculative envisioning that I believe in, and I think that we've been told for so long that that world is impossible and we won't help each other and we don't know our neighbors and you can't knock on somebody's door and expect them to help you if you're in a situation of violence, you need to call the police. But for a long time, black people and indigenous people in this country, as well as other racialized people have known that that's not what's gonna keep them safe. And that's not the option. They can't call the police. They have to call each other or they have to call somebody else and try and get help to intervene. And I think that we all need to engage with these other options and see how we can help others in those situations of violence and trauma and just even more, um, uh, maybe I could say simpler situations of, you know, food insecurity, community fridges are part of this conversation. How can we support people who can't afford to eat right now? How can we support people who are unhoused and living in encampments? All of it is about acknowledging your own power and the power of the other members of your community and acting to help others so that these institutions that do not serve us and have not served us for a very long time are not even brought into the picture anymore.
0: Yeah.
1: You, you. uh, I'm such a pragmatic, I keep going right back into, but the system exists and here it is and whatnot. I would love for us to be able to work so preventatively that um, and care for each other to a degree that, um, to to issues or to be the judge of issues as well, right? Um, however it still does and there's still a lot of low-income women and girls that are vulnerable to the justice system as being um, a purveyor of uh, being able to move on um, safely with lives so can you tell me a little bit about what the access to justice looks like for lower income women and girls um what are you seeing or what have have you experienced around that um
2: i mean the primary option would be legal aid, right? So we have Legal Aid Ontario that's funded by the provincial government that can provide legal services to lower income people, including women and girls, to deal with um, issues in in certain areas of law, but not all areas of law, Um, primarily some of the ones I've mentioned, criminal law, family law, some immigration, income assistance, disability, um, housing, those are some of the very main areas. And so, People can get assistance through legal aid through a community legal clinic or through applying directly for a legal aid certificate that they would then take to a private bar lawyer, sorry, a private bar lawyer who agrees to accept that as payment. One problem there is a lot of lawyers don't accept certificates as payment because they pay far lower rates than um, getting paid privately does. So lots of more senior lawyers especially stop taking them after they've established enough of a practice and a client base that they can do that. So a lot of the lawyers doing the work are juniors, but not everyone. And there are lots of good lawyers on uh, working on legal aid. And I, it's a bit of a myth that you can't get a good lawyer on legal aid sometimes. So I do want to very much... Trying to spell that. Um, and, you know, I was a lawyer working on legal aid. I think I did some great work. <laughs> and there are many others. Um, but uh, there there is that, and and that can help. And, you know, there's um, there's clinics that have a lot of expertise in situations of of domestic violence and sexual violence. Salco, where I worked, was one of them. There's the Barbara Schleifer clinic, which is actually privately funded, not a legal aid clinic, but focuses exclusively on these issues. So they those can be good, but I also Want to note that uh, lots of people don't qualify for legal aid certificates in criminal law or immigration law or um, refugee law or for service from a clinic because they make more money than the cutoffs for income for qualifying for those services. And the cutoffs are, um, they they need to be they need to be moved. They're too low. There are lots of people who make more money than legal aid says you can make to get that service, but who really can't afford to pay for a lawyer because it's very expensive to pay for a lawyer. And so there's lots of people who have very few options and have find themselves representing themselves in court um, or at administrative tribunals, especially and could succeed if they had more assistance, but often don't because they're working on their own. And, you know, some people succeed as self-rep, people who are representing themselves, but it's generally something lawyers advise against, including me. So so
1: clearly that's one of the things that uh, I get the senses on your attention um, right now. Are there any other particular issues that you're paying close attention to that you would want people to know more about and engage with? Uh, I am, I'm...
2: I guess maybe, what, three? Uh, I'm teaching about COVID-19 in prisons to my students right now. So that's something I'm deeply engaged with. Um, it's a moving target, so I need to keep my knowledge fresh whenever I teach about it. And obviously right now there are all these discussions about vaccinations and how they will roll out or not in our institutions. And there are outbreaks um, at various institutions, including recently the Toronto South Detention Centre, which is very near to me. And I've been too many times to see clients in the past. And so this question of how are people who are caged being treated during the pandemic and what is being done and isn't being done to maintain their safety, which like I mentioned before is an issue for the outside community as well in terms of transmission. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I'm paying attention to that. I'm paying attention to people who are unhoused and the encampments that we have seen uh, across Toronto in different parks and how people are being evicted from those encampments and what happens when people Uh, do get evicted from those encampments. And we have a case, I believe, from just yesterday from Montreal, where a man uh, passed away because he was not allowed into a shelter is a very, very tragic event that is very obviously a result of the curfew in place there and the limits to um, beds and, you know, warm, safe places for people to sleep who are unhoused, as well as the evic- evictions that are occurring in that city as well with encampments. And I believe there are some encampments in kitchener waterloo as well, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, there are some in Cambridge for sure. Okay, yeah. 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 So I think that's a, that's a big issue to pay attention to. Um, those are the two that came to mind. I think I said three, but I guess I was lying or it has <laughs> slipped my mind.
0: Yeah. Those are obviously really important ones. And I really appreciate you bringing the attention to um, incarcerated people and the impacts of COVID on them, because it is something that is not talked about uh, very widely, which is really upsetting um, when you think about it, especially when we know the numbers of people incarcerated are quite, quite high. Yeah. And when we know that the justice system is sending people into prison who shouldn't be in prison.
2: Exactly. Exactly. And we've known for several years now that the, the fastest growing incarcerated population in Canada is Indigenous women. Yep. So that is a feminist issue. That's an intersectional feminist issue. That's a that's an uh, Indigenous issue. It's just, you know, it's so important on so many different levels. It's I think it's it's key to focus on that too. And also, I haven't mentioned, but I should have mentioned, and I think it's been um, sort of under the surface and like noted a little bit, is that the criminal and legal system we have is really a catch-all for people who have mental health problems, for people who are living in poverty, for um, sort of other issues that are public health issues, people who are dealing with drug addictions. There are all these folks that end up in criminal courts who really needed intervention earlier of a public health nature, or of an economic nature and should never have been there in the first place. And we have some specialty courts, we have some mental health courts, some drug treatment courts, but they don't, they come too late. It it needs to come earlier. That intervention needs to be proactive and come earlier so that people don't end up in court in the first place because they need mental health treatment or because they need income support or because they need help getting off drugs.
0: Yeah. I'd say that's a perfect way to conclude Our interview that thank you so much for sharing those insights
1: no problem to close out our episode we want to celebrate justice that prevailed through our feminist win shout out our feminist win shout out for this month is dedicated to the green wave so at the end of december argentine senate officially debated for 12 hours and ultimately voted to legalize abortion with 38 votes in favor and 29 opposed Officially nicknamed the Green Wave, this has been a multi-generational effort with advocates working to legalize abortion in Argentina and surrounding countries since the early 70s. On December 28th, across 120 cities, women and teens stood in vigil awaiting the decision. The Green Wave now has their sights set on the rest of Latin America, stating that they're hoping for a domino effect and that Latin America will be entirely feminist. We are thrilled to be able to highlight the Green Wave and encourage you to read up more on their dedicated journey to date. And with that in mind, thank you for joining us on The Feminist Shift. You can follow our advocacy work in between podcasts by visiting thefeministshift.ca or on social media under the handle Feminist Shift. Feminist Shift is a collaborative capacity building initiative between YW Kitchener Waterloo and YWCA Cambridge dedicated to addressing gender-based violence in Waterloo Region. We are funded by Women and Gender Equality Canada.